Welcome to Sisters in Stoke. I'm your host, Megan Burks, a certified professional coach specializing in ADHD and embodiment practices, steel mace flow enthusiast, and recovering perfectionist whose life has been guided, for better or for worse, by the motto, let's fuck around and find out. On this podcast, I interview women and those who identify as women who have done just that and whose honesty, bravery, vulnerability, and curiosity have helped them find their stoke, the thing that lights them up and has shaped their relationship with their body, their spirit, and the world around them. I share the stories that inspire me so that you too can find your stoke. Welcome to the Sisters in Stoke podcast. I am so pleased to be in conversation today with Steph Jagger, who is an author. Um, I'm just going to be fully vulnerable before I dive into your formal bio that I'm going to read in a moment. I was very nervous this morning. Uh, Steph is someone who was on my dream list of guests Mm -hmm. and who I didn't necessarily expect to hear back to but not only heard back from but heard back from immediately with a hell yes to be here with me today which was super super exciting and the reason you were on my dream list is because your work as a storyteller has had Mm. a huge impact on me which we will dive into today in our conversation so thank you so much Steph for joining me today Well, I'm so thrilled and excited to be here. And like, it just goes to show, like, we never know, reach out, like everyone should always just reach out and pitch and maybe it's a no, but maybe it's a yes. And maybe it's immediate and it just all works with ease. So I love that. Exactly. I said to you, I think, you know, this is a big, bold ask. And you went, I love a big, bold ask. That's yes. And, (laughs) And you don't know, you don't know. And women are finally getting opportunities to tell their stories. We're finally getting opportunities to share our stories and our work without uh, interference without it being edited, um, without that kind of thing. And I think this is where podcasting and different media platforms has been really, really great for that. Um, okay. Steph Jagger is the best selling memoirist of two books. Her first, Unbound, A Story of Snow and Self Discovery, was published in 2017. Her second, A Mother Daughter Story called Everything Left to Remember, came out this past April. Outside of being an author, Steph is a sought-after mentor and coach whose offerings guide people toward a deeper understanding of themselves and their stories. All of her work, including speaking and facilitating, lies at the intersection of recreation and recreation of what it means to remember ourselves after the world takes us apart. Mm. Steph grew up in Vancouver, Canada, and currently lives and works on Bainbridge Island, Washington. Mm. Good morning, Steph Jagger. What are you stoked about? Oh my gosh. I am, I am (laughs) stoked. I am really stoked about, um, a lot of things, but particularly right now I'm, I'm, I'm looking out to 2023 and I've, I've really, really worked hard to simplify things. And so I am stoked about simple, easy, clear not over calendarized, like just a lot of spaciousness so that, you know, when I get emails from people like yourself, I can say yes. Um, So I, I'm really, there's something very, very streamlined 
and very airy and spacious about what I feel is ahead. Like not only for me in 2023, but just, I feel there's a lot more access to that than, than in the past. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty stoked about that. I, um, oh, yes, 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 yes. A thousand times. Yes. To saying no to things so that we can say yes to things and to reaching a place where sometimes for me saying yes is going and sitting in the forest or just, you know, and to, to have moved back a bit from that drive. And I think what a lot of people experienced in 2023 or sorry, 2022 is that we went back to quote unquote normal after the, the <laughs> pandemic, after the mm. pandemic, which is still happening, but, and then realizing that normal is actually incredibly fast paced it's very, very driven. It's driven by a capitalist economy. It's driven by all these systems that really are no longer serving us. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. You know, there's something, you know, I, I never quite know, you know, what kind of translation of uh, and language I should be using depending on different podcasts, et cetera, yeah. but I'm going to kind of like go there a little bit. Like when I talk about that spaciousness and that air that I think is available, I'm not a massive like knowledge keeper of astrology. Yeah. But, and I do, <laughs> yes. I do know that two years ago um, in December, there was something that happened called the grand mutation. And I'm sure yeah. you could like look up yep. astrologers and find out more. But what I understand of that in its essence is that it marked the line of when we moved from 200 years, 200, 300 years of um, Capricorn earth energy, which is signified by like the industrial revolution. It likes systems. It likes structures. It likes hierarchy. It likes, um, you know, different power, power grids. It likes, um, uh, three-dimensional. It likes material things, you know, all of that, which we can like see that has happened over the last two, 300 years. A couple of years ago, there was a grand mutation that switched to the age of Aquarius. It switched mm -hmm. to air energy. And that is technology and that is spaciousness and that is the invisible and that is storing things in the cloud and that is creativity and that is imagination and that is moving swiftly without being held back by the systems and the structures and the power and the hierarchies. And, and what, again, what my understanding of that is, is that it takes us a couple of years on either end. Um, so let's say a 10 year, like adjustment of like, yes. whoa, it's rocky. It's bumpy. Yeah. What the hell is going what on? The hell? Yeah, I think, I think COVID actually from a, from an archetypal or a metaphorical level, I think it actually was one of the reasons that, that it's there is to like help us move. Yeah. But as you said, it's like, oh, as soon as things open back up, we kind of like went back to the grind mm -hmm. and are going like, wait, whoa, this really doesn't feel good. And yeah. so I think we're on our way there. And, and that's one of the reasons why, why I said, I'm really looking forward to 2023 is I've, I've taken this very kind of literally and being like, okay, in how many ways and in how many places in this year, can I, can I remove third dimensional boundaries, uh, systems, structures, scalability, um, all of the things that that kind of um, earth energy, Capricorn energy was built on? Like, how can I let those crumble in my own business, which has been scary in my creative life, which has been scary and move to a place where I have accessibility to like a swiftness of flight. Yeah. And, and I'm very stoked about that. Yeah. You're raising yeah. your restraining device to you. I am. Now, I am. A very famous and well-known quote 
um, from your first book, Unbound, which by the way, when I read your bio and it said it was published in 2017, that actually blew my mind uh -huh, uh -huh. because that's only five years ago. And it felt to me like I had read that book 20 years ago, which of course mm -hmm. I know is not possible. Mm -hmm. I don't think I, like I didn't have a Kindle, you know, like I know right, that wasn't right, the case. Right. But what struck me is that when I read that book, you know, two things for me, um, one was, so my kids would have been, let me do some quick math. There would have been eight and about five. Mm -hmm. And I was going through a period, I'm still going through a period of reading, you know, women adventure writers living mm -hmm. vicariously. Oh, I want to do this. And, you know, I want to do that. But for me, that book came along at a, as a absolutely perfect time. It was one of those ones that Kindle gets you with, oh, you may also like this one. And I downloaded it and I read it in one go. And that premise of raising your own restraining device and taking responsibility for removing mm -hmm. those limitations that are in your own life came at an absolutely perfect time for me. And I know yeah. as a coach, as you would know, as a coach, that that moment with your clients where they're like, well, I can't do this because this and 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 this, and you have to go, okay, how can you take responsibility for removing those boundaries, for removing those constructs? And as you just said, to allow yourself to take flight is incredible. And are you seeing that in your work with your clients as well right now? Oh, Absolutely. Um, I'm seeing them maybe what I would, well, for, I think my work has, has shifted into a place that's, um, much less, and I think it's representative of a collective shift. Mm. That's much less about the, the breaking down of, or the examining of our intellectual thought processes, like limiting beliefs. Let's use that as an yeah. example that work is still important and still really valuable for many, many people. And I feel as though the clients who are coming to me now are like, okay, yeah, done that work, AKA the age of Capricorn, like the systems yep. and structures in my head have collapsed. And I want to go to a place where I am like reunited with my soul and with my truest longing and with my bigness in the world and I want to soar. I want to be rooted mm -hmm. and I want to soar simultaneously from that place. So like, how do we do that? And so absolutely, I'm seeing that shift from like this place of like intellectual storytelling, exactly what you said, like, well, great for you, but I can't do that because yeah. blank, 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 you know, is, is a sign to me of like, okay, there is still systems and structures yeah. living inside of this person that need to be first broken down. Mm -hmm. Once those are softened, broken down, restitched, you could, you could call it a whole bunch of different things. Then there's like a, oh, now I get to sink into a much deeper embodiment where I am remembering all the different parts of me that have been like scattered all over the place throughout my life and bringing it back together for this sense of kind of wholeness and swiftness and spaciousness and expansiveness at the same time as feeling contained. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really, really beautiful work. And to me, you know, one of the signs inside of the coaching work, as well as one of the signs inside of, you know, what I do as a creative, as a writer is, can I get myself as a human from a place where I'm telling stories about my life 
where there is a villain or villains, including me, like I could yeah. be my own villain, right? The yes. way that my thought process works, et cetera. Two, can I tell this story still true? I'm not making shit up, yeah. but can I tell this story from the standpoint that there isn't a villain? Yeah. Not to say that there aren't stories in our lives that, hello, there's a villain. We need to talk about them. We need them to take accountability. We need to set boundaries around them, et cetera. That's important. And I think there's a place and a time in our, in our adult life, specifically as women get, you know, 35, 40, 45 upward, that's like, oh, okay. We don't need to be so maiden and, and who's the enemy and, you know, et cetera, about as, as we used to be. And so can I actually move into a deeper place in my own living and my own existence where the predominant stories that I'm telling myself in my, in my head, in my existence, you know, as I move through the, through my life are villainless. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, centered on me. This is centered on my own expansion. This is centered on my ability to move um, f- with fluidity and spaciousness through the world. So um, absolutely. I see this, you know, coming through the work and, and I think there's a collective move in this direction and I think because of the storytelling that I've put out there and the work that I've put out there there's a specific type of clientele that gets drawn in that gets more curious about that yeah absolutely and I think that um that concept of reaching a place where you know I remember someone saying to me years ago every time you make someone the villain you make yourself the victim kind of thing and that that first like you said that really kind of a surface level exploration it did not feel surface level at the time let me tell you it felt like the deepest darkest night of the soul but as as you and I both know that dark night of the soul that that the way that phrase works night singular no 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 (laughs) you're gonna have many yeah you know and and your ability to move through them to sit in them to be with them as they evolve and they shift and they change. I mean, that is the work. The work is not completing these cycles of crisis or learning or evolution and yeah. moving on. Yeah. Um, I'm launching a course in the new year that works with narratives. And one of the things that mm. I get my clients mm. to do is to write a story where they were the victim. Mm. Because I think it's really important when we talk about that word, you you can be victimized. Women in particular, yeah, many of us have been victimized. Absolutely. However, you can still make yourself the hero in that story or the heroine in that story. And I'm very careful in my work that we don't go, oh, well, you just need to accept responsibility without acknowledging these systems that also definitely impact us. But that concept of of making the story villainless and understanding that all of those behaviors that we would classify as villain-like, when we can look at them through a lens of acceptance and compassion, whether that's for others or for ourselves, we start to understand that that was a human being doing human things. Yes. And, and, and this is, this is, you know, there's, there's a line and there's, there's a multitude of different lines. This is always a sign for me that, that we're in a really powerful place is when there is paradox. That yes. exists. So as, as an example, you know, in our social justice work, in our mm. activism work, et cetera, it's very important to talk about victimhood, right. Yeah. And, and, and in the ways in which that occurs, and, and what to do to, to assist with that, to, you know, that, that is hugely important. And there's a, there's an edge that we walk in regards to where does that work meet our soul work? Yes. And yes. when we move into that side of things, you know, we get to sit in this paradox of it's very important for us to talk about our victim stories, specifically as women, 
it's very important for us to hear and listen to other people in those stories. And it's also very important for us to understand how do I tell this story without the villain involved? The minute that, and, and that's a difference too, like the difference between a story with the victim in it and the villain in it. And that's also a question of centering, you know, mm. who or what is it that I'm wanting to center in this story? Yeah. And I think as we move to, if I'm telling the story from a victim standpoint, that's, that's actually a move in the right direction because I'm centering if I'm the victim myself. Yeah. And then can I move to a place where, you know, I set myself free from that? Yeah. Oh, oh gosh. I'm so glad I'm recording this because I can't wait to go back and listen to all this again and take it in <laughs> in a totally different way. This has, yeah. um, I'm going to jump to something here, which is what always happens. I have pages of notes and questions yeah. and things I wanted to ask you about. I go into every podcast conversation, well, every conversation really completely willing to abandon any and all plans that I may have Fantastic. had. Fantastic. Um, because I think that's boring when we get really stuck on what we want to talk about. But you just mentioned something that is very much part of this, this conversation that we are having. Um, in, in the book, Everything Left to Remember, mm -hmm. which is a trip that you took with your mother. Yeah. When she had all, I've got tissues sitting next to me because uh -huh. I'm going to get, I'm going to get emotional. Yeah. Um, I won't, I won't read it all, but there was certainly, um, there was a, a an opening scene, essentially chapter one, where you're working through this diagnosis. You're really at the beginning of kind of understanding what's happening here. And your therapist, Sarah, mm -hmm. says to you, you think you're bigger than your mother. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just going to read this a little bit if I can get through it yeah. without crying. Yeah. The hair on my arm stood on end when I realized it was me who was rocking. So this is you having a very visceral response to that. I liked that it was a statement, not a question. Do you think she, I like yeah. your therapist. She obviously knows you quite well and feels comfortable saying to you, <laughs> I see what's happening here. Um, my body gave Sarah all the confirmation she needed. Bodies and brains are interesting that way. The first creating space for what the latter will eventually comprehend. Take a breath, she said, after I'd finished wiping the tears from my face. I'm okay, I said, I'm okay. I wasn't okay. This wasn't a topic I'd ever pondered. What exactly did bigger mean in this context? Did I think I was better than my mother, more important? Did I think I was wiser in some way? I would have answered no to all those questions, a straight cognitive no. But there's a limit to our cognition, a limit that our bodies, our somatic recognition will stretch far beyond every time. Our minds don't have to know what a question means for our bodies to know the answer. And apparently I knew the answer to this one in my bones. They told me so as they rattled. I'd never really seen my mother. Not all of her, not her in her totality. This realization combined with the idea that her disappearance was already in motion was too much to bear. Mm -hmm. At that point, when I read that passage, I put the book on my chest mm -hmm. and I said out loud, Oh no. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. Oh. I, said, oh. I said, I knew this book because we have, we have Alzheimer's in my family. Mm. I've worked mm -hmm. with people with Alzheimer's. I'm very much aware of the fact that it is a very likely event for me to experience. My mother just turned 69 the other day. 
every time mm-hmm. she forgets anything or misplaces something I'm kind you know I'm watching I'm waiting yeah knowing that no matter what we do no matter how well we eat and how much sudoku we do and the, the exercise and the learn a new instrument and all of the things we now know <laughs> to be true about protecting our brains the inevitability of it is whether or not it's Alzheimer's death will come for us all in the end right sure. and that that reconciliation and what what I found so interesting about that question, you think you're bigger than your mother. Because <sighs> mm. it made me think, do I think I'm bigger than my mother? Do I think I'm wiser? I certainly as a teenager thought I was wiser than my mother. <laughs> and as right? someone who now has a teenage son, I could, you know, I see the shifting and it's that simultaneous sense of, you know, whether or not you have biological children this taking up of space in our world as we grow into ourselves in Mm. midlife for Mm -hmm. most of us because I think midlife is where we really get the crux of seeing enough of the world to feel a little bit more confident in those things and being tired enough of the world to go oh screw this shit I just cannot invest more energy into maintaining these appearances Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that for me this has been a process of growing bigger in myself and taking up space and using my voice and at the same time growing smaller and more still and more inward in myself so there's been this simultaneous contraction mm-hmm. and expansion and i'm i guess the question is and i you know this is not a question with an answer necessarily but that moment that really inherently uncomfortable moment of sarah naming something that your body knew to be true mm-hmm. Since your mother's passing and since this trip with your mother, how, when you think back on that moment, you think you're bigger than your mother. What are your thoughts on that moment now? Well, my my thoughts on that moment now are that that was a, a marking moment, like a cellular imprint moment. um, that, That really marked the threshold of the doorway into my initiation of of archetypal mother yeah because I think when when a woman you know as you said as a teenager yeah I thought I was I know everything you know and and I think in order for us to move through archetypal maiden yes our job is to separate Mm. it is to move away from it is to reject in many ways it's to rebel and so I think there's a natural part of that, that if we're going to keep any of ourselves, you know, intact as we do that, um, there, there often needs to be in place an egoic, uh, I think I'm, I think I'm hot enough shit that I could actually go out into the world. Yeah. And, and that might include um, for, for some of us, certainly it did for me, you know, um, in, in a patriarchal society um, that, that will likely include a belittling of of our own mothers in order to separate from yeah and so when I think about that moment now I think well when we come into archetypal mother whether that means that we are expressing that through having our own children or whether that means we're doing a combination of building our own businesses using our own creativity you know really the quintessential question of archetypal mother is what shall be created through me yes and so for me that moment is is a marking of that threshold because I think that's when the reckoning of, oh my gosh, like my mother was a creatrix. Like 
whether she was the, the best mother, a good mother, a mother who did the best that she could, a mother who damaged me, a mother who, who you know, helped me to flourish or a combination of all of those things, um, she, she created a lot of yeah. life and that's big work. And yes. I think when we come into that archetype ourselves, there's a right sizing and a reckoning that we have uh, with our own mothers to kind of realize no matter what our relationship was with them or is with them, this is big work, this creating. And they did that. And they were ahead of me on that. And there's some respect that gets built into that. Oh, I'm just, I've just been rereading The Heroine's Journey uh -huh, by Maureen uh -huh, Murdoch. Maureen I mean, yeah, yeah. that's another one of those books that you reread and you think, oh, wow, like I thought I was on this journey when I first read this book years and years ago. And, um, you know, my relationship with my own mother, as is most relationships with mothers, has been fraught um, yeah. by yeah. extreme intimacy uh, an extreme rejection at various times. And, and for me, I think it's been challenging. She actually lived here in Australia. I came to visit her, met my now husband and my mom moved back to Canada five years ago. Mm. And so I had my children by this point, but I did not fully step into the role of mother in that sense until my mother had left. Uh -huh. And so uh -huh that that core because she was here and she was there Mimi and I've been incredibly blessed to have both I had a mother and a mother-in-law who were both very involved in the the daily kind of caretaking of the children when they were young um and so that that separation for me occurred quite abruptly and quite late in life I mean mm -hmm. I was I was in my late 30s and there was this horrible realization of all the things I had not accepted responsibility for mm -hmm. um I, I, an experience certainly that I've had that I thought I was very alone in until I started speaking openly about right. it in recent years. And then you find out many people are experiencing it is how do I have kids? How am I responsible for raising these children when I'm still such a mess myself? And I don't know what I'm, you know, and I'm so young and, and that, yes. you know, those, that complicated sense of self and all of those things. Um, and my mother was, you know, she took me to take back the night marches when I was young, she'd pull me out of school. She worked at a women's center. Mm. She, um, she helped run a transition house for women who were fleeing domestic violence. Yeah. And so my mother was very much a part of those feminist conversations that were happening in the 1980s. And I've said to her more than once in anger, like, thanks mom. Now I can do it all you know, great. Thank uh, you. Uh, and she, well, you know, that was not our intention. The intention was you would choose. And, and so we've had these very heated discussions uh -huh. about that kind of thing. Um, but like you said, that, that reckoning that has to happen and that separation and that rejection of mother, which then of course flows into the rejection of the feminine, which was yes. the other, the, probably the biggest theme in this book. I mean, as I reread it over the last few weeks and I've read it numerous times now, and every time mm -hmm. there's different things that I highlight. But the other huge thread that ran through this book that was really, um, even talking about it now, my stomach's tying itself up because it was such mm -hmm. a physical reaction was about the bears. Mm -hmm. um, when I read the book for the first time, I 
was at a point where I was using my animal dreaming cards a lot and I kept drawing bear and I was having these dreams about these bears and you know mama bear and this this energy that was coming and the point at which um actually I might just ask you if you could quickly give a summary of just the dreams that you were having for those who have not read the book yet because I'm encouraging everybody to go read it immediately once they've listened to this yeah, absolutely. So when I was on the actual trip with with my mom that that the book is, you know, centered around, I had a I had a series of dreams about bears. Um I think there were 3 on the trip if if uh, my memory is correct. And so um I I I found that to be interesting, but I didn't really know what to make of them. Um and and lo and behold, so the trip uh, actually occurred in 2016, and I I started writing it 2018 19. You know, it's it's 2022 now. Um, but as I was writing it, and all through there, the, every June, every June I've had since that trip, I had three on the trip, and every June since then, I've had dreams about bears. And as I was writing it, I, I started to write the scenes of those dreams, thinking to myself, this isn't, no one wants to hear, you know, my Jungian, I can't, I don't even know what they meant. I, yeah. I, I didn't, I just couldn't add it all up. But I, my intuition kept saying, like, it's important for you to write these. So, okay, I did. And then, and then I kept having these dreams and I thought this is important and I don't know why. And in, in the writing process, what ended up happening was I I watched it, and this is no pun intended. If you read the book, you'll get this. That I watched those scenes kind of constellate in front of yeah, me. Yeah, I, I had them as individual stars. I didn't know how they connected. And then I read um, a myth of of Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, um, Little Bear and Big Bear. That's as I was writing it, I kind of thought, oh, maybe I should look up like. What I, you know, these constellations that I saw while I was on the trip at the same time, and they were Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Little Bear, and Big Bear. I was like, wait a second, I'm on to something here. <laughs> and, and, you know, stumbled upon a myth of of a hunter. You know, I won't get into the whole thing, but um, Zeus turns this woman he's having an affair with into a bear because he doesn't want his wife to see. Um, he leaves the forest saying, I'll come back and turn you back into a woman tomorrow. So the bear is in the forest, this woman. And a hunter comes along and is like, sweet, there's a bear. I'm going to shoot it. Um, and the hunter shoots the bear and kills it. And as the bear is dying, it turns back into the woman. And the hunter realizes this was this was my mother. And, and I thought, oh, my God, like mm. all of these dreams are representative of, of mother and all of the fears I have about becoming archetypal mother, all of the ways I've belittled the feminine and, and mother all of the ferocity and and power that's inherent inside of that it just it just it was an unbelievable moment in writing this is one of the reasons i love writing especially memoirs yes. if you can get to a point where your yeah. own story surprises you yes! it's one of the most like magical oh. Oh. feelings so i remember being at my desk and being like oh. i know what all of these mean and i know how they all connect and of course they're supposed to go in the book. And so um, I just, and then of, of course, every year there's been, there's been bear dreams. And in fact, I have a small, my editor gave me a small little bear figurine that's sitting on my desk that 
um, since then. But yeah, it's it's really, and gosh, I mean, I, I should write a follow-up piece as to what those bear dreams were and how I've interpreted them after the book because um, they've been extraordinarily poignant and helpful and I look forward to them every year because I feel like it's a message almost of what to do next oh yeah I just seen a moment to uh the the um first of all I want to acknowledge what you just said about when you can get to a moment where your own writing surprises you and I have entries in my free writing journals where I've written like oh my god plot twist like where you just don't see it coming, right? Yeah. These things, yeah. you start to put them together. And that moment's so beautiful. What you wrote about that moment where you looked up Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Big Bear, Little Bear, or Greater Bear, Lesser Bear, yes. um, yeah. you know, and the, exactly. that terminology yeah. as well. Um, And I've got some of it printed out here. But when you really started to look at the ways that you had made your mother smaller, which... I think in, in many ways is something quite necessary to our place in the world as we move through the world is that we, we make those things smaller so that we can start to take up that space ourselves a little bit. But my interpretation, certainly my interpretation of, of this part of the book where you were talking about Ursa Major and Ursa Minor was that when you started to really realize, you know, that those arrows were being shot by you and that it wasn't just a rejection of your mother, but a rejection of the feminine. And that yes. you were there with her and that you were laying yes. face down with her. Yes. Again, much like Unbound in 2017, me picking it up and going, oh, I'm reading this book for a reason. This came at a time for me where I was really reckoning with, which has come, you know, I'm 43 now. Mm. And my journey with feminism throughout the years has been, you know, marching and proud and this and that. And then Certainly it took a backseat at some point in my life where it just, I wasn't involved in, in the work or the activism in the same ways. And the profound discomfort in recent years where I've had to really look at my own internalized misogyny. Yes. Which yes. would have been something that even a few years ago, if someone had said internalized misogyny to me, I would have gone, what are you talking about? You yeah. know? Uh, and at some point last year, a friend tagged me in a post on Instagram where it was an image of bricks that were all neatly arranged. And then there was this one brick that didn't fit. And it was like me trying to fit in with other women was this caption. Mm -hmm. And my friend mm -hmm. has tagged me in it with this laughing face. And I've looked at it and had this immediate sense of like, Ooh, I don't, I don't like this. Mm -hmm. And I've clicked on the comments, which usually I wouldn't recommend in this case was great because the first comment I see is from this woman that says enough with the internalized misogyny, the call is coming from inside the house. And in subsequent conversations with this friend who I'm actually no longer in relationship with anymore, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we started to have these differences that I could no longer be in alignment with, I guess. What has that process been like for you? And again, one thing I've really been excited about being in conversation with you is that I can say things like feminist mm -hmm. and not have a, oh, yeah, oh yeah. I don't really know if I'd call, because I still encounter that with my, oh, I don't, I'm not a feminist, but okay. Well, right, you know. right. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, it's such an interesting thing. I feel like I've been, uh, ever since I went on that ski trip unbound, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've never kind of 
gone back to the quote unquote old world, right? So when whenever we're on a heroine's journey or hero's journey, we 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 begin in in the the original world, the old world. And so for me, you know, there, there's a different way that that represents for everybody. But I've I've kind of never gone back, and I think I think I attempt to move further and further, you know, into new worlds all the time. And so sometimes I actually feel like I've I've lost touch with you know, a lot of different parts of my old life, whether that be corporate life, whether that be friends living in a particular way, et cetera, that, that I don't get those eyebrows anymore because I, I, I don't, I don't have a corporate job to go yeah. to. I don't, yeah. I don't interact. You know, like I'm, there's no company Christmas party that I'm at where I'm like, Oh God, I shouldn't say I'm a feminist, you know? <laughs> I, so, so I feel, I feel almost, I feel more emboldened uh, or I wouldn't even say emboldened actually. Let me switch that language. I feel like it's more um, the norm. Mm. in my language um so you know a a couple of different things with that you know I had a really a really dear friend who um you know read everything left to remember and and pulled for me a whole bunch of different quotes that were like these these were the ones that hit me the the hardest and and in such a gift this is oh this person is just such a beloved friend of mine said, you know, kind of circled them all and was like, here's where your next work is. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, these are all the, (laughs) these are all the unanswered questions. And all of them centered on, you'll, you'll remember the scene. You just talked about the scene where there's the, there's the hunter, like, you know, shooting down its own mother and kind of my own reckoning with, oh my gosh, that's also me. Like I'm shooting down the feminine. And so here I am, you know, on the dirt on the ground with them. Like I have to stop doing this. And there's a part in that scene where I write, like, never once did I question who gave me the arrows. Never once did I question who gave me the, you know, the bow. And, (laughs) and that, that visceral anger inside of the book that I write about in regards to that, it was originally direct. Well, originally it was just stored and latent, which is what kills us to be quite frank. But um, then it started to be directed toward her. And, and then, you know, now I would say that's directed toward, um, you know, the, the masculine, the patriarchy, the, you know, that type of thing. Now, my work, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, is, you know, what is the activism work and what is the social justice work that I would like to engage with in regards to that? there's a secondary piece, which is what is my soul work of how do I write that story about my anger without a villain? And so there's, there's a lot in there for me to explore. And I'm, I'm actively um, working on, on that. Um, I think, I think one of the things also in what you've said, that's, that's really important is, you know, when we think about all of, we've been talking about this in regards to archetypes, specifically, we've been talking about maiden and mother. this older wise and there's a there's a missing piece in there which is because all all of those archetypes fit in with seasons so maiden is springtime mother is summer crone is winter but there's a whole different piece missing which is like the female magician the autumn queen that fits into autumn and fall and i won't get into into so much you know what those are but i think in regards to this conversation it's so so important to remember that mother is on the younger side yes of the of the quad qu- 
quadruple kind of yeah. initiation. And when we look at mother, our own mother, or us as we're standing in the archetype of mother, like what you said earlier of like, here I am as a mother, I'm going, I don't know how to do this. And I, you know, it's like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Is she, that woman archetypally is on, is on the, you know, the second yeah. of four, she's on the mm-hmm. younger side of this equation. She's just a baby. Yeah. You know, and so, so it's really, really important for us to, you know, one of the things that I do when I work with, with women who are 40s, 50s, 60s in that age range is kind of go, okay, if we're still in that age range, telling stories about our mothers and how they victimized us or how they damaged us, et cetera. And we're just focused on them, focused on them, focused on them. I'm like, they're, they were 20 years younger, 30 years younger than you you are are right now. So how do we move into, I think this is really important. How as mothers, as archetypal mothers, do we begin to move into autumn queen and crone? So as to mature ourselves, so as to create space for our younger daughters or archetypal daughters to fill in that space. Like, I don't think anyone needs to get smaller or bigger. Mm. I think we all need to evolve. Like, I don't need to get smaller as a mother to create space for you coming in as a mother. What I need to do is evolve into Autumn Queen and Crone and show you the example of what's to come, all the fabulous things that are to come in your life as you move through these different initiations. So I I think that's a really important part of this work as well is to kind of go, right, the memories of the woman that I'm talking about in this book, I mean, you know, she was 36. She was younger than I am now. Yeah. And so I make a lot of immature mistakes as, you know, you said you were 43. I'm going to be 42 in a couple of weeks. Like I make a lot of you know, naive, immature, rushed, you know, errors, you know, I, I damage relationships, I try and fix them, you know, I am not a perfect human being, nor do I think I ever will be. But there is just no way I'm going to hold her to some, yeah. especially knowing she was younger than me now, to hold her to some higher standard than I like, it just, it's a complete, to me, a complete right sizing. Yeah. And kind of understanding that we're talking about quite young women here when we're talking about archetypal mother. Well, and there's a relief with that, right? Like there is relief with that. And that's where, and this is where I. The, let, let me, let me add one thing because, because I think this is, this is where my, my anger comes in is yeah. because, because patriarchal society <laughs> deems that like, that's the only value yeah. as a woman. What, what that says is that no life exists after that. This is yeah. your only value. This is all you're here to do. So just do this. And then if you could just kind of slowly obey and disappear, that'd be great. Right. Yeah. So I really feel right now what we're being called to do as women is to say, if we, if we as a collective say that they're right and that motherhood is the only value, then that has to be the biggest. That has to be the most mature expression of ourselves. Well, we're set up for absolute failure. You cannot, that cannot be the case. As, as 30, 25 year old, 30 year old, 35 year old, 40 year old women to say, this is, you have to be the most, this is gonna be your most evolved, most mature version because nothing else exists after that. That's just, you cannot, it's, it's a, you're doomed. Absolutely. No wonder we feel so much, 
sense of failure. No wonder we feel so much not good enough. No wonder, because actually what we need and what we're being called to do in this moment is to go, where are the 45, 55, 65, 75, 85 year old women who are the wisdom keepers, who are the, the creatrix, who are the rebels, who are the, I mean, so many things that I could talk about in that age range that I think we're just beginning to see, like, even right now, I'm just beginning to see a wave of conversations about perimenopause and menopause. Oh, yes. That didn't, that didn't yes. exist. That no. didn't exist two years ago. No. So this is a good sign to me that we're going, oh, the stories of women from 45 and on are actually being broadcast they're actually being talked about they're actually being valued they're actually being called important they're actually being given airtime that is extraordinarily important for them for our own evolution but it's extraordinarily important for the archetypal mother to hear that absolutely to go oh there's more than this i i i can still continue to evolve i can still repair relationships i can still create different things i there's 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 more like this is messy i've messed a lot of this up i've done a lot of it well i've i've but i'm still in like i don't even know who i am you know yeah. so i think it's i think it's i take all of those conversations that are coming out as a, as a really really good sign because i i'm very very keen to have conversations now in my life this is it goes back to your original question what am i stoked about conversations about autumn queen and crone and really working to make those visible so that all of the pressure is not put on mother you have to do it all by mother you have to do it all by the time you're 40 you have to get it perfect by that time you have to not have fucked up your kids you have to have an immaculate business you have to I mean the pressure is ridiculous and so I think one of the ways of easing that is to really show oh we don't have to just disappear like we have a lot more life to live and a lot more to learn as as we move out of archetypal mother, actually. I, and I, oh, I think that one of the things that has been just profoundly uncomfortable for me in recent years and many women I know has been this insane realization that I love myself more now at 43, you know, and I, I can look at myself objectively and like look at my face and my body and the size that I wear. And none of that has any meaning to me. These things that for me were parameters and markers for most of my life about whether or not I was a good person or a bad person. Mm-hmm. Was mm-hmm. I buying plus size or no? You know, I had eating disorder as many of us do. <laughs> Mm -hmm. shitty relationships with food and I said to my husband the other day that I um I really right now am wrestling with these questions around cosmetic surgery and Botox and you know I don't know what it's like on Bainbridge Island but here where I live the vast majority of my friends have had some kind of work done and on the one hand for me, it's a very simple bodily autonomy, your body, your Absolutely. choice, you Absolutely. know, like, and that, I mean, that is, that's the black and white of it. Yeah. The nuance <laughs> that sits in there is these, this, 
this dichotomy of having these conversations with these women where we're talking about how comfortable we are in Autumn Queen and how excited we are to be moving towards Crone. Because again, for me in my circle, which is telling about who I've chosen to work on building these relationships and which relationships have kind of petered out over the years, I'm surrounded by women who by and large are extremely stoked about what lays ahead for us in uh-huh. this world, right? And really in some ways embracing this freedom that has come for us post mother archetype as, as we move beyond into it. This It's a bit of an expansiveness that can, I call it the tyranny of expansiveness with my clients because that freedom can feel overwhelming. Mm. That moment, mm. you know, and certainly you spoke about this in your book where when our parents are this mirror for our identity, Mm. And that mirror begins to dissolve as that relationship goes through that tear or that fracture, that separation that has to happen at some point for us to move more fully into ourselves. And suddenly we find ourselves as women in, in middle age, and it's probably not even middle age anymore, you know, but we've defined our whole lives as, you know, good student, good friend, good wife, good sister, good mother, good employee, good this and all of those roles come with a set of rules that we follow. And that actually can be quite comforting to have this, mm-hmm. this kind of rule book for things. Mm-hmm. And then we mm-hmm. find ourselves at this stage going, oh my God, I don't have to do all these things. I don't have to be bound by this. I don't have to be restricted. I could raise my restraining device. Saying that, you know, part of me goes, what? And part of me is like, oh shit. Like that's, right. that's a lot of choice. Right, right. Yeah. And, and if you're moving into that stage of, of that volume of freedom and choice from a, a predominantly cognitive or intellectual standpoint, that can create a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. Um, if you are moving into that um, freedom and choice from um, an embodied standpoint, allowing your intellect, what I'll call your four or five bodies, right? Your intellectual body, your emotional body, your physical body, your energetic spiritual body, and kind of a somatic self. If you're moving into that freedom and choice from a place where you're listening to all of those bodies, then it's not overwhelming because the rule book is your, the wisdom and the intuition that's accessible from the combination of all of those intellects, right? Now, one of the, one of the greatest kind of harms I think ever done and consistently still being done in many places to women is to evacuate them from those um, bases of knowledge. So to evacuate them from the intellectual self is to say, you can't go to school to evacuate them from their emotional body is to say, you're hysterical. Those aren't valid. Your emotions aren't valid. They're not telling you any real information about the world. Um, Stop crying. You're hysterical. This, this actually has been done in many ways worse to, to boys, but yeah. Um, uh, to evacuate yourself from your physical body is to say you're only here to create and produce uh, children and be beautiful. And then when you're done with that, you're you're gone to evacuate. So so we've been you know, I've gone evacuated from or removed or or dismembered from our bodies, intellectual, uh, emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, somatic, et cetera to come to a place where we are remembered, where we are sinking into embodiment, where we're allowing ourselves to, to understand that emotions is just energy and motion in my body. It's just, it's just information on the dashboard of me giving me 
information about where to, you know, what's true and what's not, et cetera. So when, when you, when you do enough work to get to a place where you're really listening and those are all kind of balanced or working to be in balance and, and in harmony, then, then it isn't overwhelming because that becomes the rule book. You know, never, I just said this to my husband the other day and in, in regards to the work that I do in, in these realms, um, somatic work, physical work, flow work, um, shamanistic work, I could go on and on. That isn't just, I'm looking at this from an intellectual standpoint and wanting to know where my limiting belief is and how, what's the equation for me to get rid of that. And how, you know, that's a very cognitive exercise. So when I'm diving into it from other work, I, I, I said to him the other day, I was like, I've never been so fucking grateful for my body because, know. you know, wh whether it's five pounds, 10 pounds, whether this gets wrinkly, saggy, what I don't like, I don't give a shit because this is an unbelievable instrument, an yeah. unbelievable instrument. And no wonder the powers that be want us all, men yeah. and women included, to be evacuated from that is because we're very powerful. We're very like, oh, no, Dawn, that's not true. Like, I don't give a shit about that. We're vi we, we know yeah. a lot. We know a lot about ourselves in the world when we're, when we're in that blended state of all of our knowings, right? This is very much like uh, many of the Eastern mystics used to talk, ancient Eastern mystics used to talk about this, was that there's, you know, three doorways into the house of transcendence, emotional, physical, and spiritual. You, you can enter, you can go there just by one. But if you've got all three, I mean, watch out. So I feel as though actually Autumn Queen is the, is the threshold for returning to that, for remembering. There's enough time and space now that the majority of the creation is like up and running quite literally on their own. There's still mother work to do in nurturing. There's still creation that's going to happen. But I really feel like the threshold to the next level of um, initiation and maturity is to say, oh, now it's my job to do the opposite of what they're telling me to do, which is, could you just now start to disappear or continue to stay looking younger? Yeah. Return to maiden. No, no. The opposite yes. is I shall embody all of my intellects. I shall learn. I'll take myself through a process of learning how to embody all of my intellects so I can walk into any space and understand for myself what the answer is. And if I can't get an answer in that space, it just means I don't have enough information yet. No big deal. Yeah. Oh, right. and, and the most, I don't want to say the most rewarding part of my work, because I don't think that's a definable thing. But yeah. when I work, because I work in embodiment a lot and have training in somatic trauma therapy and things like right. that. Right. <sighs> That moment where a woman realizes that everything she needs to know, she already knows. <laughs> and that all she, and so my favorite coaching question, which I asked myself a few weeks ago and had to make a huge life change. I've pulled my son mm -hmm. from the public education system. He's mm -hmm. now being homeschooled. The question I used to ask is, you know, what do I need to know universe? Guide me in some way. The question I now ask myself in a much more embodied way and my clients, and they hate when I ask them this because it's an uncomfortable question, but they love it, is what do I already know to be true that I'm refusing to accept? There you go. And that answer is so, it's so, because it's not, I can form words. I, you know, I can, I could journal yes. about it. I could tell yes. you what the answer is, but that yes. answer always comes from the pit of my belly. 
And it's that, it's that icy cold hot fire. Uh You know, it's that Uh real, almost nausea inducing, Uh almost. Uh So for me, that answer often comes in a visual. I love that you've just said this. I love that you've said this because for everybody, this is going to come in different ways. Yeah. Most of the time, it's not an organized, clearly articulate, uh, verbal answer or something in your head, right? Most of the time, it's a sense, a specific sensation. that's like your go-to. So you're just like your gut in this hot, hot, cold, right? Um, for other people, it could be shivers. For other people, it could be yeah. nausea. For other people, it could be like, my best friend always talks about anal kegels. She's like, my yes, God, just yes. <laughs> Your sphincter's like, um, and, and, you know, for <laughs> others, I often encourage this in my own coaching work is like, don't feel as though you have to answer this. But if you get a vision, yes, if a vision pops forward, if a scent, if you smell something, all of the, all of the faculties yes. of our intuition, you know, come to if you hear something, if you know, so I love that you've just added vision because I think it's really important for us to understand that this often isn't a rational or sensical no. verbal articulation. Yeah, great. Because we've been divorced from that. That's because right. we have been taught to not trust that process. Yes. Well, we- and that's that's exactly that's the damage done is is that yeah. when we come forward with those answers, yeah. the, the common response is like, well, that doesn't make sense, Susan. And you're yeah, like, that's, it's dismissed. You know? Yeah. And so this is where you go, you need to go find your people who that makes sense to, you know, you need those friends you can call and be like, oh my God, my asshole will not let go. I cannot stop picturing this thing. And this is where, you know, to encourage women who are quite new to this process, because it's, it's, I think it's challenging as a coach, when you've been doing the work for a long time to remember, I try really hard to stay connected to the vulnerability I experienced at the beginning of asking of some of these questions, of right? Course. Because otherwise it's easy to say, oh, just do this and that. And we never want to do that because it's, it's, you know, that's hard. It feels like the end of your life often. And it is, it's the end yeah. of this life. Yeah. It's the evolution. It's, it's an initiation. And so for me with those visions, I'm quite good at taking a vision and describing it with intellectual words and language. I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. That's, that's what right. I do. That's right. yeah. However, if not, what was the feeling that you had in that vision? Because even if the vision is nonsensical, let's say you picture yourself on a tightrope in a circus. Does yeah. that mean that your answer is to run away with the circus? I don't know. Maybe like for sure, go for it. If that's, if that feels right to you, right. but maybe the feeling in that vision was one of bravery was one yeah. of, you know, changing your perspective to have a macro view and looking down. And so really sitting with those things thinking about them before you go to sleep and trying to encourage some kind of subconscious lucid dreaming Mm -hmm. to help you unpack these things, talking about them with someone, audio recording, describing everything, doing free writing to just start to play and be curious with this work that can feel so heavy at times because it is so profound, because it is so important. It's just a beautiful way to live. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what I, what I kind of love about that threshold of autumn queen is because it involves actually going back and getting our younger self um, and, you know, pulling her home. Yeah, exactly. And so there, there, it can be, as you said, it can be very, you know, big work, heavy work, lots of, you know, it's very profound and it can be fun. Absolutely. And so that's a, that's an important part of this is where's the creativity, where's the joy, where's the fun, you know, how do we bring that into the forefront of it all as well? 
I'm going to wrap it up on this note because I'm looking at the time and I'm conscious of the fact that I could speak with you for 27 days, hours. you know, um, <laughs> we could take any, any single point that we've discussed during this last hour. And that could be an episode in and of itself. Yeah. But where you just ended it, this, this cultivation of joy, a cultivation of fun, what would you leave for people who are feeling stagnant right now for people who are in that? Cause I think the, the, the autumn queen transition often requires sitting in self, which can, can yeah. be, you know, something quite new to a lot of people. We're very disconnected from sitting in self, but we sit in ourselves and we start to make these transitions. And then there's this building of forward momentum and we move forward and we really get choice about how we move forward. Yeah. And we can move forward and do this important work and know that we are light bearers and know that we are clearing a path and know that we, you know, clearing, you know, the way and that we are bringing people along. We are cultivating this invitation for other women. What has been the most important thing for you to be able to do that with a sense of fun and joy and lightness? Yeah, I, I would say two things. Um, number one is this work is not work you do alone. Yeah, this is it's done with guides. This is work that's done in community. This is work that is done with, you know, especially if there's if there's our own kind of um, remothering going on, it's work mm. that it, it benefits to have somebody who can reflect back and, and who has, you know, wisdom in, in a variety of these different capacities. So that would be number one is to find, you know, a coach, a guide, a community, a group of people who, um, you know, speak a I don't want to say the same just a similar language mm. and and aren't necessarily like minded but are like hearted yeah beautiful distinction that would be that would be number 1 the second thing that is 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 imperative to me is as much as you're going to take yourself and take responsibility like radical adulting and radical responsibility as much as you're going to take yourself seriously you also have to have an equal balance of the opposite like this is, you know, completely serious and not serious at all. And so for me, what that looks like, especially if you add those as the combination, you know, I have a handful of, of women in my life that I can go to with very, very profound um, ahas and questions and things I'm rumbling with and have really deep, serious conversations. And usually those end in like just fits of laughter and to really kind of go like, I'm taking myself very seriously and really not, not at, at all. all. Yeah. Like there's music to be played and I'm here to dance. Yeah. Like that's kind of it. And so um, I always look for a balance of those two things. Oh, oh okay. Wow. I don't want to end. Um, my, my days, my days just beginning. Well, maybe this is just the start of a conversation um, because mm -hmm. there there's, there's more and more beginning to unravel in this space for you, for I, for the collective, for the women that we work with, which is incredibly exciting to see. Um, you can find out more about Steph for people who are listening at stephjagger.com or on Instagram at Steph Jagger. That's S-T-E-P-H-J-A-G-G-E-R. It's not Jagger, which was the dream I had last night, which I told Steph about <laughs> at the beginning. I said her name and she said, actually, it's Jagger, um, which made me laugh. And I did double check the pronunciation this morning. 
There are a couple different ways that you can find out more about her work and her offerings that will be coming up early in 2023. Uh, one really important and easy thing to do is to pre-order the paperback copy of Everything Left to Remember that will be available in March. Did you say it was? Yep, yeah, in March. Yeah. Um, people, you cannot underestimate how important pre-orders are for authors. Mm. It is incredibly, incredibly important. And it's exciting. It's exciting to, to see people... Um, ordering and reading your work she will also be offering a couple of writing retreats in the new year would you like to tell us a little bit more about those well those are just kind of beginning but um yeah, I'll, I'll be doing two different probably two different writing retreats in 2023 one in the yeah. spring one in the fall and I, I do an annual retreat called the nature of deep remembrance and so that'll be in the fall as well Beautiful. Um, and then in her own private practice, where she works one-on-one -on -one with clients, she will be taking on a few more spaces early in the new year. Those are limited um, yes. as, as they are in mine because the emotional investment is quite huge. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful process to walk with people as they begin to explore this path or as they deepen their exploration of it. Um, so you can find out more about all those things on her website or on her socials. <sighs> thank you so much for being here with me today well I'm just so happy that you invited me and like bravo you for following your intuition and reaching out because it's clear you were like bang on in your knowing that like in some other lifetime we were sisters and we yeah did, you know, um, yeah spent seven hours straight talking about all this so oh. I'm really um, thank you for guiding this beautiful conversation Thank you so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Have a beautiful day. I'm having a day as well. I was saying it's unusual to be in, we're not in the same time zone. We're a day apart. I'm coming from the future. Everything's okay so far. Nothing dramatic's happened overnight. <laughs> um, and I will talk to you very soon. Thanks, Steph. Thank you so much for tuning in to Sisters in Stoke. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends. If you or somebody you know would be an excellent Stokes person, feel free to get in touch. All of the information you need is in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Megan Burks, reminding you to find your Stoke.